Hi, I'm Dylan Taylor, Chairman and CEO of Voyager Space Holdings, and I listen to the Cold Star Project. The show is for entertainment purposes only and is not intended to be what is termed professional advice. The Cold Star Project is proudly presented by the Operational Excellence Society. Cold Star Tech is a supporter of the OPEX Society, and Jason Gannigan is a member of its board of advisors. Talk with us at Cold Star Tech to find out more about the OPEX Society and what we can achieve together in your organization, or just visit opexsociety.org. Thanks for joining us for today's show. Welcome back to the Cold Star Project. Today's guest is Dr. Bledon Bowen. He has a PhD in international relations. He studied at Aberystwyth University, and he is the author of an interesting book, War in Space, Strategy, Space Power, Geopolitics, uh, published by Edinburgh University Press. It's a pretty unique point of view on uh, all this space war operational stuff, and uh, I encourage you to join us to find out what that is, because it's quite different from the typical fanboy perspective that you'll see, or the mechanistic, uh, we'll do this and they'll do that sort of wargaming that we commonly see, especially in white papers, which... As, as he points out, is not really the case about how things work. Humans are strange creatures and unpredictable and emotional and don't react in rational ways. So let's get into it. Gladden, welcome. You have an interesting perspective. Uh, I, I walked into it uh, with some thoughts about it and then having listened to you talk about it and, and, and read about it, uh, I came away with, huh, there's a different way of thinking about this than I originally had. So thanks for being here. Thanks very much for having me on there, Jason. I'm uh, glad to hear that uh, um, at least my, my work is getting you to, to think um, about something <laughs> in a different way. And um, right. I mean, for me, it's as long as people understand what I'm trying to say and have, you know, are able to think about it, um, hopefully in a better way, that's what the, that's what matters, whether they agree or not is, um, is, yeah. is secondary to that. But if it gets people to think about something in a better way, you know, that's sort of what I hope people get out of um, reading uh, most of what I publish. Right, right. Well, I've been I've been getting back into a study of geopolitics lately. Uh, it's been a subject that I've left alone for far too long, uh, or thought about too generally, and uh, and I really wanted to get into more of the nuances of that. So that's that's the main reason why your book titles stuck out to me, uh, and I wanted to connect. Um, also, you're friends with uh, Dr. Christopher Newman. I see you <laughs> chatting back and forth quite a bit at Christopher, of course. Uh, does some work with us, and uh, I've enjoyed having him on the show as well immensely. So let's begin with this. How do you operationally define space power? Um, well, first, I, I would take issue with the word operationally, um, because in military strategy, uh, the word operations tends to have a very specific meaning, and so do, so do, so do the words strategy and tactics. So um, so I, I'm thinking more in what I would say strategic terms rather than operational. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, but, but in terms of the way many space people talk about space in terms yeah. of space operations and how we do things in space. Um, I mean, if, if there's one thing people take out of it is that space is more is about infrastructure and logistics um, and then supporting terrestrial requirements and environments and, th- and theatres or domains as is the current military um, term in fashion right. so um, so it's about that secondary environment support to the primary environment that is earth itself um, space is not something that's special and um, mm. happens for its own sake it, it supports the terrestrial environments 
Okay, so that right there, folks, and I meant operationally, like in the clinical or psychological experiment term, right? Um, and I, I should have, I guess, said that. But uh, so, so you're saying that space is not a thing unto itself. It is not. It does not have its own reason for being. It is a supporting actor to what we're doing down here. Um, is that a function of because that's where we live right now? I mean, when we when we have space stations with lots of people living in space, uh, will that change? So, yeah, in that sense, space is, is not particularly different compared to sea power or air power in that regard. Um, land is, is and, and then only very specific kinds of land on Earth is, is where um, humans live. It's, it's, it's where the, the political end point of any war is. So for anyone who's familiar with the maritime strategy or sea power theory, may, might be familiar with the work of Julian Corbett, who said that um, um, you know, sea power is only relevant insofar as it affects um, people and events on the land. Uh, it has to contribute to the political control that you have over whatever territory or polity that is of interest um, in the particular war or dispute. The same then is true of space and um, uh, an American um, analyst and scholar called John Klein analogized um, a lot of Corbett's concept to space back in the mid 2000s. Um, and um, I discussed sort of that early on in my own book as, as a foundation really to build on sort of my own sort of more unique um, sort of additions to space power theory. So, so um, space is only useful really in the way that it makes a difference to us on earth. And it's not just something that's done for the heck of it or because you think space is cruel. And um, this is where I upset a lot of space cadets um, because they don't need any explanation or justification as to why they're doing something in space. But if you're from the strategic mindset or you're from the policymaker mindset, uh, you're thinking, okay, well, why are we spending all this money on this? Can it be done another cheaper way? Or what's unique about this that makes that difference on Earth? And you have to make that positive case for why something is done in space in the way that it's done. Um, and what the, the effects are. You have to make the so what argument to people who don't care about space. And most people don't care about space. Um, so again, upsetting the space cadets when I say such things. Um, but I, 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 And I think it's important that a lot of the space literature and people in the space sector realize that it's still a very niche community. Most people really don't care. And they only hear about space when things go wrong. So, um, you know, how many people in the 90s realized that GPS was so important before that, um, before all their pages stopped working? For example, in the uh, 1998, I think it was glitch involving pages, I think, because of a one particular error on GPS. Um, so, so when that might change, um, I don't know. Um, for anyone who's seen me rant on Twitter or <laughs> on any of my, uh, opinion columns um I'm, I'm i'm a bit of a um i don't know what the correct word is but i'm a bit of a uh, skeptic in terms of the more enthusiastic space visionary futures that people have um or the, the future visions of space that people have in terms of um habitation in space so um anyone who's a big sort of elon musk martian colonization fan uh, you know i just start rolling my eyes and just hmm. not really want them to engage very much so you know that for me is a very very distant future or any sort of large-scale human habitation in space where humans are living in space and and um this is where i like to refer to um scott pace who until recently was the uh, chief executive on the national space council in the u.s um he says that if there is going to be any sort of 
large-scale human presence in space, it's probably going to be something along the lines of either Antarctica, um, where you're going, you're going to have scientific outposts, um, or you're going to have something like oil rigs, if there's going to be anything that's of economic value out there. So the things that people go and live at for a while and then come back, but it's not self-sustaining, they're not large-scale communities, and they are really dependent on Earth. So even then, they don't dislodge the importance of Earth itself as the primary economic, political, social node of humanity as we know it. At least so, for some time, yeah. I'd love yeah, to have Dr. Jim time. Pass on here to talk about uh, what what uh, his perspective is on that. But So what you're saying is, is interesting. I've been thinking while you've been talking about uh, points you've raised. Uh, I think of a, a cruise ship on the ocean. People call it hotels or, or cities uh, on the ocean, thousands of people. Uh, its own kind of ecosystem, but they're not really self-sustaining. They do have to come back into port, and uh, and they're only thousands of people. And if you compare that to a city in a temperate zone on Earth, uh, the density and the growth that they're able to get to in the city is is far greater. So, yeah, and, and my question with that is, what are they doing? Why are they there? Mm, mm -hmm. like, what 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 is their purpose and function? Mm. What's the economic value of what they're doing? Um, you know, and that's not, not that's not like necessarily a capitalist question. It's about resources, um, you know, and what what function, what do they generate, what do they produce? Um, you know, that's a question. That's um, uh, whether you're a space communist or a space capitalist or something in between. Um, social democrats in space. I don't know, um, but um, yeah, what what's the function of it? And the the O'Neill habitats, um, you know, those perplex me because. Um, you know, cruise ships are hotbeds of disease. Yeah. <laughs> Imagine how bad it would be on an O'Neill habitat mm. and we can't even actually do cruise ships on Earth properly. Um, you know, even before the COVID uh, pandemic, you know, food poisoning and bugs were, right. you know, <laughs> prevalent on those. Um, so, so there's a lot of stuff that we can't do on Earth um, when we have the benign and a relatively benign environment that alone self-sustaining habitats right. um, in space. Huh. All right. Well, I want to bring this this concept up. Uh, I've heard you, heard you talk about uh, this concept of space as coastline, uh, which which we've we've touched on uh, as we've come in. But I'd like you to kind of dig into that a little bit more uh, and those Clausewitz principles that you've uh, kind of dug into in in your book. So yeah, so the coastline thing, um, building on you know. Um, Earth being the only sort of important node in human civilization, um, Earth, Earth orbit really is is more of a coastline. But a lot of people refer to space as this new ocean or um, something akin to you know sea power or you know, interplanetary space as as oceans. And whilst I'm open to yeah, one day maybe interplanetary space might be like vast expanses of ocean. For the moment, Earth orbit is where politically and economically and militarily important stuff happens in space. And Earth orbit is very nearby. Um, it's relatively easy uh, for different kinds of political actors to generate effects there without going to space itself. So you can engage in anti-satellite weapons or anti-satellite activities like electronic warfare and jamming, not just the missiles that can blow stuff up from Earth without having to put stuff in space. And they're like coastal guns, for example, okay. you know, that, that are specialized at attacking vessels. 
um, in nearby waters. So Earth orbit is like that because it's nearby, it's proximate, it's fairly confined in certain areas as well. So it's not this fast expanse, really. We're, we're talking about quite clearly defined um, volumes of mm -hmm. space and areas of high volumes of traffic as well. There's also the aspects of the radio frequency spectrum, which are very, very crowded. Um, so in terms of shipping lanes and passages of um, attractive commercial um, of routes, um, you can see a lot of parallels there with busy shipping lanes in narrow, narrow waters, more so than open oceans. So, so that's sort of a general analogy. And also that um, major military and economic powers today on Earth that are using space have more in common with continental powers that use sea power rather than island-based sea powers. So, um, so a lot of my work on the cosmic coastline um, and the coastal and continental approaches to space come from looking at the mar maritime or naval cultures of countries like France, Russia and the Soviet Union and um, India as well, because okay they have threats on land as well as at sea whereas if you're britain or the continental united states or japan you're an island or an ocean going power by by necessity and therefore you're naturally going to think of the sea as a very very important thing in the same way that america might naturally think of space but even so today all the major space powers actually are earth-based space powers that use space and Earth is the most important thing in their calculations. They are geocentric, they are Earth-centric, and right. space is secondary to that. You don't have to do stuff through space to achieve your objectives on Earth, but space helps and space is important, but it's not the be-all and end-all. And the coastline okay. brings that secondary element to the fore in the way that blue water oceanic thinking does not. And a lot of the American-based literature on space power theory um focuses on that blue water oceanic strategies and i'm sort of pushing more continental based approach as as an addition and and more of a correction to it rather than a, a full sort of replacement because i build on a lot of the work that came for mm -hmm. okay which is <laughs> perfectly normal um <laughs> uh, yes yeah, so, so you know you think of um america fighting japan in in world war ii um there's a considerable distance that is a vast ocean desert uh, where where material and men had to be moved across to take islands and uh, and that's very different from the situation that we're talking about about uh, the near earth orbit or geo even um, where it is close by like you say and so you're going to have different ideas there um what are the what are the levers and dials of space warfare so um, space warfare can involve a lot of different techniques and systems and, and technologies. So um, soft kill and hard kill are two important distinctions. Hard kill being uh, missile interceptors or kinetic uh, weapons or ramming vehicles. Um, and soft kill can be electronic warfare or jamming or um, computer network operations or fashionably called cyber. Um, so getting into the control systems of satellite networks because satellites are robots and they are managed by machines and computers here on earth. Um, and you have the radio communications between them. So um, electronic warfare um, is already happening with space communications. And um, if there's a significant war tomorrow, um, you can definitely bet that anti-satellite uh, jamming would be a main part of it. Um, and you can have these weapon systems capabilities that are based on Earth and in space. 
most of which are the most matured anti-satellite weapon systems are based on Earth. So um, China, America and India have demonstrated a hit to kill capability with direct ascent weapons. So missiles launched from Earth that hit the target in low Earth orbit. Russia has done flight tests of similar systems as well, but hasn't done an actual intercept test uh, with those systems. However, Russia has a lot of heritage with the Soviet era space weapons with a lot of space based interceptor weapons uh, as well, which they tested then as well. So I don't think the Russians feel that, oh, we don't really have to prove ourselves as much. Right. Yeah, Maybe they will do a hit to kill test again in the years to come. Who knows? But um, um, I wouldn't want such comments to age badly here. <laughs> but, um, well, as long as they don't knock something out of the sky and make a mess yeah, like yeah. another country did. But those sort of hit to kill systems, whether they're based on Earth or in space, and the Earth-based ones are the ones that are really spreading. They're still fairly exclusive. Um, they're difficult and expensive to do. And you also need a lot of space tracking and um, space situational awareness or space domain awareness capability to do because a weapon is no good if you don't know where to point it. So, um, so for example, whilst India has proven a capability with a, with the missiles and the interceptor, it still has a long way to go in building a um, elaborate space surveillance and tracking system so that it can reliably acquire the targets. Um, China also is in in a similar situation, but not to this not to the same sort of um, lower level as, as India in in that technological field. Other other ways, uh, so these soft kill systems like electronic warfare and cyber. I mean, you can't really monitor those. They are spreading and they are extremely secretive as well. They are far more secretive. So um, um, any scholars in strategic studies or war studies will know if they've ever bothered to look, will, will know that getting proper information on electronic warfare um, is really difficult. Um, a lot of the basic techniques and technologies haven't changed since the Second World War. Yeah. So um, cyber, you can maybe learn about incidents that have been released, but again, the technology very, very difficult to monitor. Um, so, and, and those things, are, there are lower um, uh, barriers to entry on those capabilities as well. Um, so we know that in the 90s that, um, uh, I think it was Indonesia jammed a um, Hong Kong satellite um, that was placed in Tonga's geostationary um, communications uh, slot. Um, that, that was in like 1996 or something. And, um, you know, they're, they're not uh, the richest military powers right. um, either. And that was a long time ago. So you can bet more stuff has happened, uh, has happened since then and, and could happen again. So, so those are sort of the sort of the main methods of space warfare, really. And they are spreading in, in different ways. And um, uh, the Americans have had uh, the counter communication system for a long time now in the US Air Force, which is I think now has been transferred to the Space Force as well, which is a dedicated anti satellite jamming uh, squadron. I think there are two squadrons, if I remember correctly. So so that in a, in a nutshell is what space warfare is what it looks like, um, and what sort of levers if you want to call them that that um, uh, strategists can pull on in a in a major conflict. Okay. Bledon, what, what does winning look like in this environment? Are we just at Clausewitz Realpolitik, deny the use of it to the enemy and, and use it ourselves? Is there anything more? Um, what is victory in, in war is mm -hmm. up to whoever's doing it to define <laughs> time. Okay. Um, it, it depends um, really on the political object of the war, as Clausewitz would say. So war in space is still a war. So whatever your conceptual understanding of war is, and if, if you understand it according to the Clausewitzian way, 
space doesn't change that at all. Um, it doesn't change the nature of war. It's still it's still about um, you know war is political. Um, war is a rational activity. It's chaotic and it's um, uh, emotional as well. So that that, that uh, trinity is is still there. Um, and what victory um, is space war looks like? I mean. <laughs> could be anything it's whatever gets the job done and whatever gets your objectives achieved so if say in a china china taiwan war scenario um if if decision makers in beijing are happy in destroying various parts of earth orbit in terms of the utility for everyone in order to win that war in taiwan then mm. if, if that's how badly they want to win then they right. might do that so um it depends on the value you attach to the political object, whether you can tolerate some satellite losses and how much environmental degradation you're willing to accept as well, especially if it's environmental degradation that might only really get bad in another six months or a year. When you're actually fighting a war, the next week is what you're right. worrying about or the next day, not mm -hmm. the next year or a decade. So, um, yes, yeah, so I know that's a bit of an academic non-answer. That's a good, I liked it, it actually. It really depends on what you're fighting for and what's it worth to you because, you know, w space warfare is relevant whether you're fighting a proxy war, whether you're supplying space-based intelligence to your client or your friends or your allies or to your proxies. Mm. Um, you know, the Soviets and the Americans did that throughout the Cold War, um, like the Soviets in Ethiopia, the Brit uh, the uh, Americans with the British in the Falklands, um, or whether we're talking about nuclear war where everything ends. So mm -hmm. space warfare is relevant in all of that. So victory could be anything and so can defeat. Okay. Well, let's bring geopolitics into the, the discussion. Um, are, are there equalizing forces? And we've touched on one, which you mentioned, which is the, the sort of relative cheapness of electronic warfare means a soft kill. Uh, say, like, it, it, people don't know this in general, but like Russia has an economy one fifteenth the size of the United States right now. It is not uh, a number one, you know, country. It's a, it's a 10 right now, you know, and if the U.S. is a one. And so is there anything that... Uh, these folks can do that is cheap uh, to level the playing field? Or, or, you know, are we looking at EMPs or um, just the soft kill stuff? Um, I don't like the term equalizer. Okay. Um, again, academics and terms. Interesting. <laughs> because for me, it's um, it oversimplifies the reality of war where nothing is ever equal between the two sides. Um, okay. You can, you can seek advantages, you can try and be efficient, yeah. you can exploit weaknesses. Um, play to your own strengths, but it doesn't mean yeah. things are equal. The only thing that comes close to an equalizer really are nuclear weapons with with long range ballistic missiles. That's and mad, yeah, and mad, yeah. Okay. Because you know, the you outcome point, is well, you know, ultimate. you reach the point where relatively poor and small states could vaporize the biggest right. cities of the adversary, and and then vice versa. Right. So that's the closest thing there is to an equalizer. Um, okay. But other than that, I mean, yeah, you look at Russia, I mean, they are channeling advantages that they have, which is a very well-developed military space sector, lots mm -hmm. of heritage with, you know, cutting-edge Soviet technology from the 1980s. I mean, Soviet military space technology in the 80s was brilliant, <laughs> relatively mm -hmm. speaking. Um, you know, it was keeping up with the Americans in a lot of space-based applications. The Americans were ahead in integrating it with terrestrial military forces in the 80s. 
um, as far as I understand, but in terms of the hardware the Soviets are putting up and orbital operations, the Soviets, you know, re really, really knew what they were doing and not just in the space station front, which is what more people were more familiar with in terms of Soviet space excellence um, by, by the end of the Cold War. So, so the Russians have advantages there. Um, yeah, in terms of relative economic size, um, yeah, I mean, Russia can do things on, on the cheap because it pays its specialists less. Um, I, I don't know what Russian pensions are like. I imagine that they're not as good as a lot of American private and federal pensions, um, and you know, and as and for West Western Europe uh, as well. So yeah, Russia has the same economy size as Benelux at the moment, I think, um, or, or Italy. Um, so, so yeah, so it has those advantages, and but then when you apply those capabilities, because determining advantages in warfare is not about just counting the beams or measure, just looking at what they have, it's how they use it and against what targets as well. Um, so it's and are the targets you're targeting with the systems you have good enough to do what you want to do? There's 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 a completely different capability requirements and effect of, say, taking out um, a single American keyhole satellite mm -hmm. at a very critical time in a border crisis versus taking out the early warning Spurs system completely. Mm -hmm. And one of which could be interpreted as a prelude to a nuclear attack, the other wouldn't mm -hmm. be. So, uh, but one could make far more of an impact in a crisis in terms of just creating new facts on the ground in a particular time window than the other. So again, it depends which space systems you want to target, how and when, and relative to what's going on on Earth as well. Mm -hmm. So again, you, you know, this is non-linear holistic thinking, which is what strategic theories are really good at trying right. to get across to people. And a lot of thinking, and, and especially punditry on the internet, um, on various mm. blogs about space warfare, mm -hmm. they are so linear, mechanistic, and technocentric. They're not thinking strategically, and they're not relating those technologies to how they're actually going to be used in actual yeah. scenarios and what are their actual impacts on the ground, and whether you can target them or not, and what their effects will be. Yeah, and that that's a great point, Bladen, about. It, it, just because you have the technical capability to do something does not mean you can or should or will use it uh, for any particular use, any specific use. Uh, it, and you can switch over things. Uh, think of um, uh, Germany bombing Britain. Um, we can bomb the RAF. We can bomb airfields. We can use the same infrastructure, the same tools to bomb cities at night. And, uh, and switching that happened to be a poor strategic decision uh, on, on the part of the Germans. So there's, there's an idea of, of using the same means to do, uh, you know, or accomplish, attempt to accomplish anyway, a different, a different goal. Okay. Yes, yeah. So, so, you know, you never know how somebody's actually going to act mm -hmm. when something happens. And, you know, as the old adage goes, um, you know, everybody hates fighting the Americans because they never read their own doctrine yes. manuals. Right, which which goes back to that, that <laughs> war as well, right? The Russians said that, yeah. Uh, so <laughs> that's a great point. I haven't I haven't had anybody else bring that up before. So that's, that's great. I love that quote. Uh, 
you know, it, 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 folks can go back and, and study uh, fellows like Clauswitz or Grand Maison and, uh, and, and see there's a, there's a great book I'll link to if I remember in the description. And if I don't, somebody remind me, okay, uh, about the history of warfare and, and how it's used um, really, really great, especially the last, since Napoleon, the last 200, 250 years. Uh, well, let's talk about this then. Um, I, I follow Stephen Kotkin. Um, he talks about geopolitics and, and Russia and China, China not having a California, for example, and having to rush to uh, like Pakistan and um, buy port facilities there and install a trade facility and then say, oh, we need to protect that let's build a naval base. And now they're occupying that, that zone. Um, and so this sort of thing is going on and I don't think the, the public really knows about it. I certainly didn't know about it until I started educating myself about it. Uh, what, what international issues should we be paying attention to now that you've like brought our, brought our eyes, our focus back to on earth, let's look at what's happening on earth here uh, that could impact space warfare. So that's a big question, uh, yeah. difficult as well. Um, yeah, so, I mean, it, it depends what you think the most important problems are, And I mean. Um, and, um, I mean, if you were to ask me what are the biggest problems that really need addressing, I mean, the two are, one is global warming, um, second is um, um, nuclear weapons. Mm. Um, Still, interesting. Yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> an accident could happen tomorrow and millions okay. of people will not realize it's happening because they'll be dead mm. so uh, you know and that's in an instant so so um, you know accidents will continue to be a risk for nuclear weapons so long as they exist um but then of course if you get rid of them then you get rid of um you know the the deterrent effect you believe they 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 have as well so i mean i don't know what the answer is but the existence of nuclear weapons is a problem uh, whichever way you cut it um so you need better control of what's there and some way to counter proliferation and minimize the risk of accidents hmm. so so those two really are the biggest problems um then then of course you have you know the rise of china or the return of china as a major um political and economic power in the international system and whether that rise will remain peaceful well if you're somewhere something of a waltzian in international relations you'll you'll think, well, nuclear weapons will make sure China and America never go to war, um, which, yeah, let, let's hope that holds because the alternative is probably too disastrous to think about. Um, but where does space fit in, in, say, those three things? Well, space technology, as well, I imagine most of your audience know already, is absolutely essential for climate and earth science. Mm -hmm. um, if, it's, if it's not for satellite-based applications and also space science more generally, we will not understand our climate and environment anywhere near as good as you do. And the term greenhouse effect comes from the study of Venus as well. Mm -hmm. um, so so um, space technology is absolutely essential there. Um, and then you have all the earth observation technologies that came from the military industrial complexes of the United States, Europe, Russia, China, and also India, they're, they're bringing more stuff online now for better climate and environment monitoring, uh, which is essential if we're going to have any chance of managing Earth's ecology better. So in terms of supplying that technology and infrastructure, space is absolutely essential for that. All that's required is the political will to actually do something that stops us from damaging the one planet that, that we can live on more. 
Um, so, so space is fundamentally important there. Um, however, it can be bad if all it does is that it makes our consumptions of Earth's resources more efficient and speeds up the process of trashing our planet Yay. because we can now <laughs> find out oh, how much more land we haven't appropriated and used and turned into pure economic value. So, so there's that element. Um, nuclear proliferation, space-based systems are... Um, when they enable nuclear war in that, you know, space launch vehicles are closely related to ICBMs. They, you know, they're not the same, but they are closely related. If you can do one, you're not that far away from doing the other. Um, you know, Iran is sort of a classic example of, of this now. Um, so, so there's that, but also that space-based technologies are useful for um, early warning systems uh, for the Americans anyway, but not everyone has an ocean between um, likely nuclear aggressors. So, you know, for say Pakistan and India, well, you don't need a satellite based early warning system because, you know, <laughs> you're not going <laughs> to have any warning time once the aircraft start, you know, uh, flying against each other because they're right next door to each other. Um, but arms control verification and, and um, uh, monitoring, you know, space is really important for that. The rise of China is where we're looking at really space being part of a global infrastructure that China is rolling out across the board. So, so you mentioned the um, uh, port facilities now and naval bases that China is interested in across the Indian Ocean, Horn of Africa, um, and part of the so-called string of pearls strategy or whatever the variation of the one belt, one road plan the Chinese have, which changes its name in English at least. Right. Every few years, it seems, from the China watchers. Um, you know, that there's a space uh, element to that as well in terms of the navigation system, Beidou, um, communications relays, um, uh, maritime traffic observation, all kinds of Earth observations, and the equivalence of what we've become used to with the uh, American and European military space industrial complexes and the commercial civilian orientated services that have come from that. China is building an alternative to that. So getting cutting edge economic development um, and infrastructure capabilities now well you can now go to the Chinese for it rather than having to rely on the traditional Americans Europeans or even the Russians for it either who have dominated that market for less developed states until now um, so what's interesting as well is that a lot of those less developed space less developed states can do more in space themselves so countries like Nigeria um, is actually very active in buying its own satellites now and then operating it operating them themselves um, so some less developed states, the, the more populous and larger and richer ones can do more, but there's still a lot of smaller states there who won't be able to afford a lot of space infrastructure. Now they can go shopping for space infrastructure services and it's up to them to decide, you know, are the Chinese giving us a better offer uh, than the Americans or the Europeans or the Indians um, even, um, or the Japanese? Um, so, so that is part of China's sort of infrastructure competition that we're seeing um, across across the globe. You know, the, the we, you know Huawei is in the news a lot and uh, 5G networks. Space is part of that same spread and competition of high technology infrastructure. Mm. So, so that is sort of more profound in a political and economic sense. And China's rise as a military space power is part of China's rise in general and its modernization across the board. Okay, excellent, excellent. Uh, yeah, and for those who think just because uh, countries or nations are intertwined economically, that, that does not mean that they will not go to war. 
uh, was it Donald Keegan or Kagan on the uh, on the causes of war and the preservations of peace, something like that. Uh, there's a there's a book well, about that. In 1914, uh, the the um, yes, imperial, yeah. imperial Germany was um, the British Empire's single largest trading right. partner. So, right. Yeah. yeah. Um, as you as you mentioned earlier, humans are emotional. <laughs> beings and war is often uh you know especially the uh, the causes of it are emotional in nature um and, and folks go to war for national honor avoiding being embarrassed um being pushed into a corner where they feel they have no options uh that happened to japan um and uh it, you know in and in the moment you're oh look at how horrible these people are you know but uh, when you back off 40 years or 50 years or something and look back at it you can see wow there's more information <laughs> coming to light, and, and you say uh, things were not the way that we were uh, that we were told. Yeah, and, and, and people tend to, I mean, always think of war as unthinkable in the position mm. that they're in right now, and then mm. after it happens, they they tend to see it as, oh well, it was right. inevitable that war right. was going to happen. Yet there's always a complacency about the threat of war and mm. how things can go so badly, so quickly. Um, right. Of course, different to many parts of history now, we have the nuclear revolution which um, makes most major wars between the major powers suicidal for everyone right so that is that good they hope... won't do it <laughs> yeah 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 and let's let's hope we don't get a dr strangelove scenario where just somebody goes mm -hmm. a bit nuts mm -hmm. yeah and uh, <laughs> i don't know if we're working on any doomsday devices but uh, who uh, knows? if anybody is they have to tell us about it because that's right. how it works <laughs> <laughs> yes, Kubrick made that quite clear many years ago. All right, uh, well, let, let's cover this question here. The, you added this to, to our Google Doc, and I found it interesting. Um, so from your perspective, what is the significance of the uh, US Space Force? Ah, yes. So, <laughs> um, so this has triggered a lot of interest now in military space activities where there really was very little of it before. And, um, you know, I've been doing international relations and space and military space studies now for about a decade um back in my undergraduate days and you know i'd get laughed at then and people thinking i was a space cadet um okay. being this massive cheerleader for anything to do with space which i haven't really always been i've always liked space but I've never been sort of a uh, thinking you know everything about space is amazing but um but even even until maybe like 2015 2016 talking to people in academia international relations um or even people working in policy uh, in general security policy when you tell them oh i'm doing military space or i'm doing space policy you get a little laugh people will be mm -hmm. desperate to get their sci-fi little joke in which gets really tiring yes um, and people always see it as a bit of a joke and then space force with donald trump mm didn't help that so much in many ways because it became an object of ridicule it had a satirical tv show out before it even started mm -hmm. as well and and that tv show wasn't even that great either mm -hmm. which i don't know maybe is good or bad for the actual space force i'm not sure um but um but more people are aware that military space is a thing now um so i guess in the long run in terms of public awareness that is good because many people think of space as, you know, science, exploration, the Apollo program, um, maybe if people know the robots or the probes mm -hmm. that have been sent around the world. They haven't seen Earth orbit and the space age as a time when humans have been putting infrastructure in orbit. Mm -hmm. And that infrastructure has been mostly 
used for military and intelligence purposes, of which the economic utility has only come in maybe the last 20 years. Um, and, and Space Force really has sort of generated sort of more awareness and discussion of that. Um, and here in the UK, the UK government um, has been far more interested in, in space policy than it ever has been, and there's more sustained thought on it now, which is good. So the fact it's taken, being taken more seriously is really good. Um, what's interesting as well with the Space Force is that whilst many people thought it was all about, you know, new space weapons programs or, you know, Buck Rogers or something like that, it was mostly just a bureaucratic reorganisation of the US Air Force. Um, which immediately loses everyone's interests mm -hmm. as soon as you tell them that because it's military bureaucracy. What could be more fun than that? Right. Acquisitions processes, um, military culture. Oh, wow. But that's what's going to change with the US Space Force. That's what really is significant because you are putting a more space-centric culture Mm -hmm. um, in charge of more space activities. Uh, who does space? Who buys and designs what in space for the Pentagon? Um, you know, this, and the Space Force is not separate from the Air Force just yet. It's, it's a core, really. It's not a separate force. It's, you know, it's, it still relies on the Air Force for a lot of things, but it has reduced um, the air personnel's influence on space now. Mm -hmm. So we'll have to see if the common gripe from the space cadets in the Air Force about the Air Force will take space's money, but not actually spend it on space. We'll see if that changes in the years ahead. Okay. So, so you know, over the long term, it'll be interesting to see what space culture develops as a result and whether acquisitions is going to improve or not with the Space Force. Um, and, um, and interestingly, it was one of the few things that was bipartisan during the Trump years as well. Um, so I would imagine that it's here to stay for, for a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and, and it's it's hard to turn off now that it's been <laughs> switched on, right? Uh, I think it's it needs done. congressional action to do it. Uh, the president can't executive order it out of existence. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, the folks that I know in the military who are becoming members of the Space Force are pretty darn excited about it, I can tell you that. Uh, well, they're, they're very you happy to be want motivated people in those jobs, because <laughs> mm. they're going to yeah. spend most of their time in a windowless bunker looking at screens. So I'm mm. glad they're enthusiastic right, about right. it. Yeah, and I guess that is a function of who's being selected. You, you've got a point there. Exactly. <laughs> so, exactly. Yeah. But, um, right. but you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's one of the things from the Trump administration where, you know, there was actual, you know, there's, log there's logic behind it and the idea isn't inherently ridiculous. Um, of course, the way things are done is another matter, but the actual idea, it's like, well, well, this has been debated in the Air Force since the start of the Air Force and since yeah. Thomas White sort of took over space for the Air Force within the DOD. Um, and, you know, the Air Force was still driving its feet on it until Trump basically said Space Force. Mm -hmm. Well, very, very interesting perspective, especially from from outside the bubble that I'm in, where uh, where I know these guys, and it's always rah rah. I'm so excited, cheerleading, etc. Uh, so yeah, and and the acquisitions and the spending, I think, uh, follow the money, and and we'll see what the actual intent here is. So that's that's very cool. Uh, our final question, and and I think one of us put this at the bottom of the Google Doc, and uh, I thought about moving it up to the top, um, but I left it at the end because I wanted, I realized, people to take action. Uh, and if so if we covered this at the very start, people would go, oh, that's very interesting and very nice, and then they'd have forgotten about it by now. So I want them to exit <laughs> with this, with this uh, topic in mind. Why did you write 
and publish a book, Blenden, on this topic, War in Space, Strategy, Space Power, and Geopolitics. Who are you working on impacting here and why? Um, so first and foremost, it's it's really what my PhD was on, and I spent so many years on that PhD on a field that I've, I've found interesting and enjoyed studying, which is classical military theory and space. Everything's better when you put and space to it, I think. So, so I am a bit of a space cadet in that sort of small regard, I suppose. Um, but, you know, I've spent so much years on that and seeing how little thought and, and or how few people were working on that area, really. And, and since my undergraduate years in the late 2000s and then between 2010 and 2015, I saw the cyber warfare or cyber power, cyber security disciplines in my field take off and also in security discourse and language in, in, in practice as well, completely take off whilst space was being overlooked, space was being forgotten about, space was always sort of, oh yeah, there, there are also satellites doing these things, but, um, you know, let's talk about software, um, which is like, okay, well, you know, cyber is important and we need cyber experts, but there were just so few people who were actually looking at space and there were so few people writing books of substance that were disconnected from practice as well, that were outside the Pentagon outside the think tank circuit in the capital beltway of DC so few people outside of the United States doing it as well. And a lot of space power discussions were just being subsumed by the psychodrama of the space weapons debate in US national space security discourse. Um, where, so, so there was just no real holistic academic understanding of space power and international relations um, and a more dispassionate view of military space power. Um, so, so that's sort of what the book then, the book is trying to put a more sort of dispassionate but grounded view of what military space power is and what is, how it should be thought about in its relation to international relations and strategy. Um, so hopefully it, it'll just be a, a work that helps move the field along. Um, and hopefully it's one good addition to the space security libraries of various institutions. Uh, I used to teach at the um, um, uh, Defence Academy in, in the UK, and they have a very, very large library in the Joint Services Command and Staff College. And their space section is still the biggest single space security and space warfare section I've ever seen, but it was still like a fraction of the size of the equivalent air power and sea power sections. It was still so, so tiny. So, uh, and that's despite our massive dependence on space systems for military and intelligence uh, capabilities for the past 50, 60 years, you know, think in terms of Western militaries here. So, um, so it's more to try and just push things along uh, in that regard, um, really. So, and hopefully it'll make some positive impact in professional military education as well. Okay. Yeah. Well, and to be fair, we have a lot more experience fighting on land and sea and oh, in yeah, the air yeah, than absolutely. we do in space. So, uh, you know, it's all kind of theoretical right now, but I really do like the perspective you're bringing to the table of about uh, reminding folks that war is slushy. Uh, war is emotional. War is irrational. War surprises you. 
uh, and and folks do not operate in this lockstep mechanistic uh, sort of process that uh, it's it's easy to lay out because you're looking at the technical capabilities and that's your focus so um, I, I recommend checking that out. Uh, it, where can folks get a hold of you, Bled? And I know you've got a blog, uh, which I enjoyed reading, um, and, and uh, obviously you've got the book out there for sale. Thank you. <laughs> so um, uh, I'm on LinkedIn, uh, I'm on Twitter, um, and um, I also have a website called the Astropolitics Research Portal. Um, so that's sort of where I put interesting things to read, um, really. Um, so I, I update that periodically. Um, and then um, people can find my email address if they just Google uh, my name and my university uh, as well. Um, so you'll find that pretty easily. Um, so, but if you find me on Twitter or LinkedIn, you'll probably be sick of me in no time. Well, yeah, yeah, I, I read that Bleden means wolf, <laughs> and I think you've lived up to that, certainly, on, uh, on Twitter. Well, my guest has been Dr. Bleden Bowen. Uh, it's been a real pleasure to have you here and, and uh, hear this perspective of uh, space warfare that you've got. Thanks for being here. Thanks very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for tuning in. If you're interested in working with us at Cold Star Tech, here are some of the things that we can help with. There's a lot of people who talk about process, documentation control, attention to detail, all this stuff. We help organizations become true learning organizations. Remember, if something isn't written down or recorded in some way that's accessible, searchable, findable, it didn't happen. It might as well not have happened. So if you have two people who solve a problem, a serious problem in your organization, but they do so in isolation and nobody finds out about it, which happens all the time, then it didn't really happen and nobody else can access that wisdom. So we unlock wisdom for your organization. We do a lot of things in the space industry. We have access to regulatory and legal officials who can help you if you're a space industry founder find out what areas of regulation and compliance uh, do you need to be you know, working with, compliant with. And we find a lot of folks don't even know about some of these areas. They don't even know that they exist. Can you imagine how you're going to stumble and stub your toe and really screw up your organization's timetable if you don't know about these things? So come and talk to us. We've got great relationships with the right people, especially in the United States and in England, and uh, we'll be able to help you with that. And so when it comes to process improvement, whether that's some sort of business documentation, business development rules, wow, have I seen some things in business development. You got founders out there who all they're doing is quoting on projects. This is a mistake. You're wasting your energy bidding on things that most of which you never even had a chance of winning in the first place. Uh, I've seen people bankrupt themselves bidding on everything or bidding on only these uh, high-end things and not realizing that you need to have a strategy so that this bidding process pays for itself. I mean, you gotta learn how to screen here. And this is not something that they teach you in school. I, I had to learn it myself, so don't feel bad about it, but come talk to us about it, okay? Uh, so either it's on the business process side or the actual manufacturing of physical goods that kind of process improvement. You can come talk to us. Can this be done faster, cheaper, better? And yes, most of the time it sure can um, because people just do stuff. And the first person to invent the way of doing things uh, is the person who gets to choose most of the time how things are done. This happens all over the place. I like to point out our um, traffic signals for, for automobiles 
are based on the way that they ran railway traffic 100 years before that, okay? So, and this is key in the space industry right now, which is new, right? This is an area that I personally am interested in. How we figure out how to do stuff today is going to impact generations because people are so easily locked into this is how we've always done it. And if you hear that at your organization, there's a warning bell. This is how we've always done it. You need to come talk to us at that point, okay? So reach out to us. It's easy to do. Just message me on LinkedIn or email me at jason at coldstartech.com. I want to hear from you. Thanks for listening.